0: You now have AK-47s and Kalashnikovs being mated with a drone with remote laser targeting systems and now you have autonomous drones being trained theoretically to look at a particular face and, and go take that person out without you know, uh, any human being being involved. So mm-hmm. same thing with tanks, the whole weaponization of AI and in my role as the chairman of the Responsible AI Institute as a nonprofit, I started six years ago. That's the work I'm doing with uh, NATO and the U.S. Department of Defense and others on how do you put guardrails around AI's uh, views in weaponization. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second part, I use the healthcare and the financial services example. The other thing that's
1: really scary about it. Hey there, this is Ben. thanks for tuning in to lead the team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best selling author and in demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. Today I have for you Manoj Saxena, who is the Executive Chairman of the Responsible AI Institute, a nonprofit he founded six years ago to advance certification of trustworthy and ethical AI. He is also Chairman of Cognitive Scale, a venture-backed software company, focused on AI engineering for regulated industries. Until recently, Manoj was chairman of the board of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, San Antonio, and served for six years in that role. Previously, he served as the first general manager of IBM Watson. Yes, that Watson, where his team built the first cognitive systems prior to IBM Manoj was the founder and CEO of two venture-backed software companies, which were acquired within a five-year span by Commerce One and by IBM. He's director of the Saxena Family Foundation and a lecturer at University of Texas, Austin, where he teaches a course on design of ethical artificial intelligence systems. Manoj, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you, Ben. It's a real pleasure, and thanks for having me yeah I mean this this intro is just unbelievable, and I'm just so excited about it. <laughs> but let's let's dig in to a term that I ran across in one of your TED Talks, what is digital exhaust? and why is it <laughs> important to leaders?
0: Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great question to open with. So digital exhaust is all the trails of data. That we leave behind in our interactions every day, as we go around, you know, living our life or working or playing, uh, we are so connected with the, with the devices right now. Be it your mobile phone or your laptop or your TV or even your blood pressure monitor, uh, there is these breadcrumbs of uh, digital, you know, signals that you're sending out into the ether. In many cases, not into the ether. Right now, as you and I are speaking. Mm-hmm. Alexa is collecting my digital impact uh, exhaust and uh, hopefully they're not sending it back to Amazon. But so that's the whole notion of, um, you know, we are the first generation that is going to leave behind not just an organic exhaust, which is our children and the DNA, but also a digital exhaust, which is everything we post on Instagram to Facebook to Twitter to the conversations we are having on WhatsApp.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so powerful. To think about, because it seems like so many people approach technology as like a convenience thing, oh, or it's like it's art, it's creativity. But to your point, all that stuff we're doing leaves this exhaust trail. And what do you think leaders need to be thinking about next about this? Because I mean, I mean, to me, for uh, as a leader, it might trigger fear or like, oh my yep. god, some of this is going to be bad for me uh, down the road. But maybe there's also some positive things to be thinking about too
0: oh absolutely so this is this is the raw material uh, this is sort of the new oil data is the new oil as someone said so digital exhaust is a new oil on which you can refine this and you can start building some very compelling applications um, to improve our lives and improve society on the other hand the same digital exhaust can be used for you know harmful purposes uh, it could be used for hacking into your private information about your private lives and so on and so forth so as a business leader I would look at digital exhaust or data for that matter as the next generation catalyst for business transformation. It's Mm -hmm. a way in which I can start serving my customer in a much more powerful way. It's a way in which I can improve the productivity and careers of my employees in a much better way. And it's a way in which I can innovate in a much more powerful, pragmatic and profitable way. So this is the foundation Uh, On which the next generation businesses are going to be built. And the Google CEO said it well. You know, he said it AI and data is as transformative to humanity as fire and electricity was. So, Mm. this is on that scale. This data and AI that's coming up is going to be fundamentally changing the nature of business and driving a shift from, I call it as dot com to dot AI. We're transforming businesses from being dot com powered to dot AI powered.
1: What's the, what's the thing that's got you most excited or like, what's a specific example that where you're seeing is being put to use now, uh, that you're like, man, that, that has really got me fired up.
0: Yeah, I think, um, the ways in which medicine is going to change, uh, I think is one of the things that excites me the most, everything from cradle to grave, you know, when a baby is delivered, there is this, it's a data baby is a lots of sensors and data that's in the neonatal unit. It's coming out. Uh, of all those senses. And how do you use that to apply knowledge of 10,000 other babies in the last 15 years that have had similar issues and how outcomes were transformed by using that digital exhaust of the neonatal baby to everything from episodic health, like someone breaks their leg and is a diabetic patient. So how do you have a nurse consult with that patient with the power of 10,000 best nurses behind her to say, "Have similar? I've seen similar cases before. So mm. I call it augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence, where the mm. AI taps you on the shoulder and say, "Consider this treatment also for a diabetic because the bone will heal faster this way." to all the way. so so going from birth to episodic uh, illness to chronic illness, people who are end of life and they're dealing with issues being alone in their home, and how do you use devices that they're surrounded with to make sure that they're taking their medicine at the right time, make sure that they're being, you know, consulted by the nurses in in the right manner. So the whole healthcare applications of AI, I think, is going to be very exciting and transformative. It's happening already.
1: So cool. Yeah, I, I I've heard some speculation that we'll be able to talk to and I, and I and you're and you one of your TED talks with, uh, mentioned something about uh, imagine if the the learnings of Aristotle had been captured. You could actually speak with her, and maybe you still can based on the learnings of being digitized. An artificial intelligence machine can sort of back into what Aristotle would have thought about something, maybe philosophically today, and you can converse. And the fact that we're doing this podcast episode is going to be digitized. And after we're long gone, your great, 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 great grandchildren, perhaps, could have a conversation. how far off are we from that?
0: Well, I think it's already happening. I used to tell my girls, I'm a proud father of two daughters. When they were teenagers, I used to say, be careful what you're posting because your grandkids are going to see you in those outfits and the, and the, and the pictures you are putting up there because <laughs> we're, the first, we're the first generation um, that's going to live on forever. Uh, before this, the last person who remembered our name, when that person died, we were done with history but this is the first generation that is leaving behind a digital footprint and an organic footprint so therefore 500 years from now you know whatever we say or do is being recorded for posterity for eternity so in that way i think it's
1: uh, something that's already afoot what's the scariest thing going down like what's what's what, so when it comes to ai what what keeps you up i would say two things and um
0: one is weaponization of ai so uh, weapons uh, being so you now have ak47s and kalashnikovs being mated with a drone with remote laser targeting systems and now you have autonomous drones being trained theoretically to look at a particular face and and go take that person out without you know the, any human being being involved so mm-hmm. same thing with tanks so the whole weaponization of ai and in my role as the chairman of the Responsible AI Institute as a nonprofit I started six years ago, that's the work I'm doing with uh, NATO and the U.S. Department of Defense and others on how do you put guardrails around AI's uh, use in weaponization. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second part, I use the healthcare and the financial services example. The other thing that's really scary about it is these AI systems, these data-powered systems that are learning on their own, They most of them operate as black boxes. So, if these things have bias in being trained into the data set or into the models, we are and we could be automating inequality at scale. Uh, there have been cases mm. where a large um, United Healthcare, it's in, in the press, uh, they've been sued by minorities, by blacks in the US, saying for the same medical condition, they're being given less healthcare than whites are.
1: Mm. And it's
0: been proven because their AI was trained on data sets that started creating that bias and propagating that bias. So there is a real danger as more and more decisions, yeah, as more and more decisions on what loan you get, what healthcare you get, what education you get, who you date, what news you listen to, all of that is being changed by AI and algorithms. And if you start not being able to look into the mind of the AI and govern these AIs, we could be creating an incredibly disruptive and an uneven society. That's the second thing uh, that incredibly bothers me. And, and that's the whole shift that I put on responsible and trustworthy AI.
1: Yeah, I've heard it put one way where, hey, Ben, you know, we have a couple of different global challenges. And most of them were, we're sort of united to, to reduce and constrain, like global warming. Now, some countries aren't as aggressive as others, but most would agree global warming is something we should be aware of and, and we don't want but artificial intelligence is like the only one out there or, or like nuclear weapons. We want less of those, you know, but AI is the one where companies and governments are just incentivized to run like crazy and they're throwing resources at it. And so it's a, uh, let's just say you've got a big job ahead or maybe we all no, it is. I mean,
0: I, I call it, <laughs> I, I call it, it's like, we are like children playing with bombs Right now, that's what we are, we are like kids playing with bombs with AI. And with more and more compute power being available, more and more access to building new models faster, the Pandora's box has already been opened. So I'm an AI optimist, but I'm also an AI pragmatist in that how we apply it and making sure that it is governable and is transparent and trustworthy is quite important. Otherwise it's gonna create massive divisions and disruption in society and in business.
1: Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get Vital Insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So what is the question that leaders need to be pondering right now for themselves? when When it comes to artificial intelligence, I guess there's a career one which you talked about with your digital with the digital exhaust topic but now can I think about their own teams and their companies what what is the question that they need to be wrestling with
0: i think there are four main, four main questions they should be asking about one am i understanding and deploying this technology in a responsible way for the benefit of business and society so at the very top level responsible innovation with ai number 2 Am I understanding the limitations? There's a lot of hype about AI also. Uh, AI is both amazing innovations, and AI is also artificially inflated. Uh, it stands for both. And so am I applying it, um, understanding the limits and the potential of this? That's number two. Number three is, am I training my workforce and am I building the capabilities that are required for me to scale my business and my profitability with AI? And number four is, am I doing it in a manner that is transparent and trustworthy, that it is not going to create some un- unintended consequences and damage my brand and create lawsuits and create customer mistrust in me? This is the whole area called you know, responsible AI. So those are the four big things that uh, when I speak to CEOs and boards probably a couple of dozen times a year, those are the four things I keep um, hammering on.
1: Yeah, I think that all four of those are so critical for us all to be thinking about as a society. And to really have, I mean, to me, even a greater risk is for leaders is you don't have a strategy. Like, answer those questions, but what is your team, what is your company doing? Even if you don't know exactly where you're going to go with it, have a strategy to, to think about it, to plan for the possibilities so you're not just totally left out of this. Now, Absolutely. I want to give a shout out too, by the way, to Seth Dobrin, who introduced us, who's been on the show. Um, and just like in that interview, I don't want—I don't want to—I didn't want to bury the lead and be like, I not talk to you about artificial intelligence because, man, y'all check out his TED talks. There, there's a lot to unwrap there. But your background is, is also fascinating. So I want to spend a few minutes. I think the listeners are going to have a fun time listening to this part of it. So let's let's go back in the Manoj files here um, to early in your career, which I believe your first job was at 3M, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, that, that corporate powerhouse, 3M. And I'm told that you're one of the youngest managers at 3M, leading a team at the time of seasoned telephone technicians. That's right, y'all, telephone technicians. Um, that on average were twice your age and didn't care for the MBA types, which you were one of those. What what were the leadership lessons that you took then? So we're talking about way before artificial intelligence, right? You really, yeah. really caught on. What what was it?
0: Well, I think um, probably a couple of big lessons. One is uh, the statement that I my general manager told me back then was, never view the world from behind an office desk so mm-hmm. never lead from behind a laptop or you know go out there get to know your customers get to know your product and don't lead from behind an office desk which is something i've always kept close to my heart and then the second is great leaders know not just a great vision but they also have a very strong level of connection and compassion with those that they lead and mm-hmm. it's incredibly important and as a as a guy in his 20s Managing people, you know, who most of them I knew from the get-go, uh, did not have any respect for me because I have never climbed a telephone pole, I have never been down in a manhole repairing you know telephone wires, and here I am operating the business and telling them which products we're going to launch. And mm-hmm. I remember one of them said to me, you know, half joking, was, you know, I am in my 50s and I have more spent I've spent more time in the bathroom than you're alive. Okay, and that was a great line. I thought it was a great line. It 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 was very you, you didn't know, forget it. Was it. <laughs> it was very pointed. I mean, the guy became my friend. I mean, his name was Chuck Rosine. He's no longer with us, but Chuck was one of my greatest teachers because. Yeah. And I told Chuck, I said, you know what, you, you make a good point, but I'm here to learn. Tell me how do I learn? And Chuck said to me back then, the first thing you got to do is really start to understand your product and the people who deploy the product, which is people like me who grew up through the ranks as a telephone technician. So I spent two weeks uh, down in manholes and climbing telephone poles, understanding the products that I was actually building and deploying. And the very nature of my job as a leader changed after that because when they would come in and tell me, well, we are dealing with this 72-inch sl- slick fiber closure and we are having problems in Massachusetts, I could visualize exactly the kind of problem the telephone technicians were happening with the new product because I was up there on the pole trying to install it 30 feet up in the air. Dangling in wind. So that was the second lesson, which is understand the product, understand the users, and also build the connection and compassion with the team that you're leading. I would say those are the two big things. Because before that, I was mostly an IQ driven leader. This made me an IQ and EQ driven leader.
1: That, That story resonates with me so, so much. It reminds me of my first job as an industrial engineer. And I was just Mr. Mr. XL. And yeah. I was just doing my time studies on my desk. And my boss at the time, Gary Adams, um, said, Ben, you need to get out and you need to get in the factory. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you need to get behind a sewing machine. And you need to, you know, we were all, also, I was trying to figure out how many packages and whatnot could fit on a uh, on a trailer. And I was Taking the measurements the company had given me and I was figuring it out. And he's like, No, 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 Ben, don't trust the company. You need to go out and measure at least 10 of those tractor trailers to make sure that was the right. Yeah. And I was like, it's yeah. hot out there. And he's like, I don't care. So he had exactly. me behind sewing machines, on cutting machines, measuring trailers. And I was so irritated and frustrated. I'm like, I didn't go to college for this but I like because I learned the business that way. I did learn that level of compassion and empathy that I think I had I would not have gained if I just sat behind a desk. Amen. Amen uh, to man, that. Man, what a powerful story! Uh, but I, I think climbing telephone poles and getting in manholes definitely tops, <laughs> tops <working effect. laughs> Well, su- such a great such a great advice there. So, other thing, that, other thing that comes up here is in one of your TED talks, you speak. Of your personal motto as do good, have fun, and make a lot of money, but never get that sequence confused. Where did that lesson come from?
0: Well, I think you know um, that came after I built and sold my first company. So after 3M, I took three hundred thousand dollars in twelve credit cards and I launched a startup, and um, and that was like <laughs> late twenties, and at thirty one. I had sold the company for north of 100 million dollars and I was sitting with a lot of money and not, not a bad like, ROI on that not a bad ROI at all <laughs> but you know' it's just, this is the internet boom times what was important is not that I started I knew when to sell um the that time I had all this money and all this bank balance and for about the first three months I went nuts buying homes and watches and cars and doing all the stuff that you know one would think if you had a ton of money. You know, money will give you the joy and happiness. But after three mm. months, Ben, I was back to being my miserable self, mm. because I did not have a purpose. I did not have a, the brain candy, as I call it. So then I realized that the purpose of life is a life of purpose. It's not money. Uh, it's the purpose that makes you wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to make the world a better place. And in the process, I'm going to learn and I'm going to transform myself and the world. So That was the point that I realized that I need to have a mission that I'm always, I I don't see myself as ever retiring uh, in the the rest of my life. I think to me, the retirement was when I became an entrepreneur, I retired. I left a large company and I'm controlling my own destiny. So that's when Mm. I realized that the sequence ought to be to go pursue a mission that does good for the world, that gives you the true north. Mm. And then to have fun doing it, you know, startups are an act of faith. Startups are one of the hardest things you will do. But if you're not having fun doing it, the easier ways to make money if you're only doing it for for that. And then if you do good and you have fun, then you focus on, you know, making a lot of money in that order. And that has been Mm. my motto. I have seven companies now that I invest in through my family office. And that's my advice I give to all my CEOs is never forget the sequence. Do good, have fun, make a lot of money. In that order,
1: do good, have fun, make a lot of money. In that order, yeah, it's so important because it it is so easy to get that thing reversed. Absolutely. I mean, do you think looking back, so so you you acquired this this motto or this saying, and after you you'd done your first big one, right? Yep. And do you? I mean, would it have been harder if you would have flipped it and started out? (laughs) <laughs> Would it do good first? Would it have been a hard, I guess it's hard to speculate at this point. How it yeah, might have I been think different. as a young person, as a young immigrant,
0: you know, your success is driven in the early days. They're the father of two children. You want to financially yeah. provide for your family and for your kids. Yeah. So the normal thing to do as a responsible parent is to say, let me go make money and provide the foundation for
1: them. Yeah, that's and, the pressure. Uh, and you do that.
0: Yeah, and you go and you do that. But once you do that, you realize that money gets you choices. Money doesn't get you happiness. You know, money gives you control over your time. Money does not. If you're a miserable person, you will be miserable with more luxurious stuff around you. And uh, so that realization, I think I had to go through that journey to realize that uh, what really matters is is purpose.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... Purpose is everything. Uh, yet... um. I feel like a lot of people say, "Well, yeah, yeah, I, I want purpose. My purpose is my family." Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I believe, based on what you're sharing, is like, "Yeah, family initially is 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 purpose to provide, but there's a higher calling."
0: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Beyond that. Absolutely. What, the purpose it's it's beyond your bank balance and your home and your family. Purpose is about: Are you a giver or are you a taker? You know, what are you giving back to the world? You know, particularly as an immigrant, when you come to the U.S., I'm one of the most red, white and blue sort of patriots you will find. This country has given me opportunities that back home in India I wouldn't have gotten growing up. And so when I look at that, I I ask myself, you know, to date, I've raised over $200 million in venture funding. I've created companies worth over $2 billion. Those kinds of opportunities could have never been made available if other people had not created a playing field for me, where mm-hmm. based on my talent and my outcomes, I would be rewarded. So the purpose to me has to be about how do you use technology for good? That's my purpose in life, is how do you improve society? How do you improve human health? How do you improve education using technology? And that's a problem that will stay with us for the next thousand years. It's not a problem for the next five years, 500 years or 10, hundred, 10, 10 years. You know what I mean?
1: And it gets harder and more it complicated. Does get harder.
0: It, absolutely and that's where I think the de- need and demand for more great entrepreneurs comes in.
1: yeah it seems like a field too that touches every single industry so powerfully even if even in those industries that are in denial <laughs> that oh, it, absolutely. That it's happening. absolutely I mean this is going to be like power
0: you know technology and AI is going to be the silver thread that will run through every business and every parts of our life. I mean, one of my TED Talks you you spoke about, I talk about the death of Homo sapiens and the beginning of Homo digitalis, that Mm -hmm. as human beings, we're getting instrumented. We're getting digitized. We're getting connected through these devices. So the very nature of what it means to be human is changing with technology. And we
1: have to embrace it. What was it like working with Watson? Such an iconic name. I mean, ever. Most listeners probably know the Jeopardy story. They may not know that Watson started out as a chess player, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
1: Blue. I mean, what what yeah. was it like stepping into that? Because at the it time was, you were already was. you had been CEO of another company, right? Yeah. Yep. and, and, and Yeah. Yep. And then they put you in in with this Watson yep. stuff. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's a, to me, when I, when I understood that, I'm like, that's like, you're like, hey, here are the keys to, you're an outsider. You were not an IBMer. Uh, exactly. and they gave you a, they gave you the keys to a, really their marquee branded thing at the time.
0: Yeah. It's the crown jewels well, of IBM that they gave you the yeah. keys to. right?
1: And you and, were, uh, and you weren't there 30 years beforehand.
0: No, like I was there just for three years. I was there for three years when they gave it. I think it, it's it's first of all it was a massive privilege, and it also spoke to the greatness of America. Only in America would a kid from India uh, be given the keys to one of the most important technologies. And IBM, the leadership, they told me the last big innovation at this scale was the mainframe in the nineteen forties. So wow. the the sense of you know understanding what hmm. IBM had put as emphasis on that, and the sense of trust. That they put in me. So it was a huge privilege. You know, I used to call it it's like being Gene Kranz, you know, the the direct mission director for the Apollo mission, right? And (laughs) one of the things people used to ask me saying, What if Google pays you 20 million dollars and hire you away? I said, How much money would Gene Kranz have taken to leave the job at NASA? He would have never left for any money. There's never any money in the world. So it was a privilege, it was an honor, it was the early onset of AI. Watson was the one that put AI into the commercial mindset. Um, now, it fell short in some of its objectives, but it was a harbinger of what is to come. Everything else, the, the Deep Mind and all the Google and other things came much later. So it was a huge um, honor. It was a massive responsibility. And it was a lot of fun trying to figure out how to convert a game-playing Jeopardy machine to start diagnosing you know, medical diseases. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing it.
1: Yeah, as I understand it, as as it progressed, post Jeopardy was was heavy into the medical sector, right? That was one of the main, that de- de- around cancer and detection yeah. and stuff like that. And now here we are. Yeah. Well, what what a cool cool story. So let's now let's bring it up to today, and yeah. I mean, your your website around your racing. <laughs> It looks pretty extreme. It's one thing you like you're racing Formula One, but you're taking these cars out, right, that were built in the 1950s, some of them? 1930s. And racing them thousands yeah. of miles in the desert? Like, what is all this about, sex and racing. <laughs> it's,
0: it's about It's about, uh, it's about meditation uh, in a different mm-hmm. way. I call racing my meditation in motion. Uh, I have a very hard time. My daughter says that dad has a million tabs open in his brain at a given time. And, you know, Uh it's like a browser tabs. And that's not far from the truth. My brain's so active. There's a lot of tabs open all the time. And racing is the only time when I am in it that I'm able to shut down all the tabs and focus on just one thing. So it Uh provides me an intense space of focus and calmness. And uh, a connection to the world that uh, I've never experienced doing anything else. And uh, so from then on, I started going back in time. So the car that I race now is a 1934. It's an 85-year-old car. Uh, the only 22 of them that are left. There's nothing electrical in it. It's all mechanical. And when you try and raise that across Africa and you have to fix it when it breaks, there is a very primal connection with the machine and the environment and your own talent And uh, I see that as balancing my geeky side and my technology side uh, around connecting with the world and exploring the world and uh, learning the machine.
1: So think back to one of of your early times racing and Mm -hmm. you discovered that racing is meditation and motion. Mm -hmm. Describe that moment.
0: You know, it's very interesting. That moment didn't arrive in the beginning. I was scared shitless when I started (laughs) racing. Okay. That will be me. (laughs) Yeah. So I remember the first time I sat in a Formula 2 car, and uh, as I was getting strapped down, I see an an ambulance and a fire engine, and I asked them, is there any accident on the racetrack? They said, no, that's for you guys. If something goes wrong, they're there to fix you (laughs) up. And I remember that distinctly, that whole lap. I was like sweaty palms, and I was like, wow, you know, this thing could really so it like with anything else, anything new that you take on, there is a lot of humility and there is a lot of effort you need to put into to learn that machine, to learn that craft. And it's and and, and, and one of the feedbacks that my instructor gave me was smooth inputs. Great racers know how to give smooth inputs to the car. Don't give mm. it jerky inputs. So as I started focusing on just that one thing, giving smooth input into the car and don't sort of jerk around and then when the car kind of gets out of control, you start realizing that it moves from your hand to your body, to your mind. And there is this smooth sort of this flow Mm -hmm. that you become one with the machine. Because if you don't, bad things happen. Then if you start overthinking or over inputting. So that's where I think I started realizing as I got better and better at racing that the calmer and calmer I got. Um, and and that's where it was, you know, it became sort of an addiction after a while.
1: Wow. What a cool metaphor. And I, I like that. Uh, and I, I've never thought about it that way. But thinking about, because yeah, the, the automobile for so many people is something that we, we kind of goes into the back part of our brain and we just do automatically. And it's hard to find that appreciation. But I think when you do it at an accelerated rate or you have a special kind of car... It goes from the back part of your brain to the front part and you're highly attuned uh to what's going on. What is um you become one with the machine, you really do.
0: You're in the zone.
1: Yeah, it ties back to artificial intelligence so yeah. <laughs> so well. What's the what's the most fun racing experience that you can remember?
0: Well, there have been so many of them. I would say um the one we did in Africa. So we went across Africa in this eighty five year old car. Uh, we went across South Africa to Namibia, to Botswana, to Zimbabwe. We did this whole loop around southern part of Africa. And uh, being out there in the desert, in the second driest desert in the world, and the car breaking down, and no one around you to come help, and figuring out how to fix the car and get back on, um, that was one. And second was uh, a second race in in Morocco, in the Atlas Mountains, in the high Atlas Mountains, we took a wrong turn and uh, basically lost our way and no telephone signals, no nothing with the night descending on us with not, nothing warm to wear and not knowing whether we will survive the night and make it on the other day or not. And uh, fortunately for a shepherd who found, you know, found us and pointed the way. So there were some very interesting moments wow. where you are in the element with you know, nature and uh, both of them, I think, were under stress on how to fix it and how to address it without with calmness, I think is what was a lesson through it.
1: Hmm. Wow, I love it that. Burma, story.
0: Burma was another fascinating thing when we raced through Burma. That was another interesting experience. But yeah, we can go on. We can do a whole podcast session
1: on racing and life. You know, lessons between racing and it's, life. It's, a lot yeah, it's such a rich background. In my, this whole interview reminds me of The Alchemist. Have you, have you read the Alchemist <laughs> yeah. by Paul Coelho? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of That's my big. favorite books. People even yeah, mentioned the Shepherd, yeah. the journey. Yeah. We talked yeah. about purpose and discovering really a a, a higher purpose uh, as as we went through this interview. And man, what what a beautiful one it is. Um, wrapping this up, although I don't want to wrap it up, but we, you know, we're bringing it to a close for your for, uh, for your valuable time here. What is your uh, parting thought for for our listeners today?
0: So tell me more,
1: um, more uh, in terms of the life or business or... Yeah, just whatever, whatever you're kind of feeling right now.
0: Yeah, I would say that, you know, a couple of things. These, the times that we are living in right now are one of the most exciting times, also one of the most troubling times. And I'm one of those people that believe Uh, That technology can actually help us solve um, a lot of the challenges and issues that that we are facing, whether it's climate, whether it's overpopulation, whether it's supply chains, uh, even war. Uh, So I do think that this whole thought, shifting away from the thought that Silicon Valley had promoted, which is move fast and break things um, Mm -hmm. with technology to move responsibly and grow things. Uh, is something that I am trying to get the message across, is responsible innovation. Uh, Because we have in our hands some exponential technologies like AI that could create massive opportunities, but also massive chaos if we don't um, deploy them responsibly. So one thought I would say is understand these technologies, understand how they are changing life and work and healthcare, and um, start promoting the responsible use of these technologies. The second part, as an entrepreneur and a recovering entrepreneur, is to say that these are the best times to be an entrepreneur. You know, We are looking at getting into the teeth of a recession here, and these are the best times to be starting companies because the nature of problems, even though technology has been crushed, um, the sector has been crushed, and stocks have been crushed, these are the best times to get seed stage uh, companies going. So make use of it and um, dive right into it to improve the world and find purpose in life. And hopefully, make a lot of money in the process.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds like great, great advice. <laughs> Responsible, thank you. but yeah, go for it. And it's such a up and it's it's an upbeat way, I think, to approach uh, approach the times are in. I thank you for coming on this show today.
0: Thank you, Ben. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting do this before you do anything else head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book the quit alternative the blueprint for creating the job you love without quitting you'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision go to binfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping